Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, Internet. I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards. And I still don't know how to introduce my podcast now that we're transitioning to a new introduction. But that doesn't matter, because today we have a rip-roaring episode about a terrible person from history. Uh, And helping me to tell that tale will be my guest today, Courtney Kozak, co-host of the Private Parts Unknown podcast, uh, which is also co-hosted by uh, Sophia Alexandria, our our frequent guest. Uh, Courtney, how are you feeling today? I'm excited to be here, Robert. Thank you for having me. Indulging How do you my feel about my new my bastard oh, worship. <laughs> now, what bastards do you mostly worship? You know, I got into it. I think I got into it through the standard gateway of a good old Hitler worship. <laughs> oh, good old Hitler. Yeah. yeah. We all love us a Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I I mostly worship through your show. That's my Oh. Yeah. Well, who's okay? Well, who's been if who's who's been your favorite uh, bastard we've covered recently? You know, I am so freaked out about climate change. So, what was? Oh, Lumborg. Yes, yeah. yeah, that was. He's a real piece of shit. He is. He's ruining us. Well, today we have a lighthearted episode because um, I, I think things are getting real serious, and I think we all need to relax. So today we're going to talk about a hangman um, who was a terrible hangman. Um, but the people he was hanging were all Nazis. So even though he definitely qualifies as kind of a bastard, 
the victims are Nazis, so we're okay. Like th- this is gonna He's be a like fun a Dexter. one for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, if Dexter was like known by his incompetence rather than his hypercompetence. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this guy meant to do most of. Well, I don't know. It's debatable. We'll see how you feel. I was gonna ask um, you, what do you think is the most common thread between all the bastards? Is it psychopathy? Bad upbringing? No, I think it, I think it's relentless self confidence. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. I think <laughs> all of the worst people in history—that's the driving factor—is they really believe in themselves. Damn it! We're really fostering that in our current system. Like everybody gets a first place medal. I, you know, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I do think that that is one of the one of the. One of the consequences of uh, uh, our, our focusing on people's self-esteem is that all of the worst people in history had had great self-esteem. Um, you know, Hitler was a guy who really believed in himself and his ability to change the world. Mm-hmm. It's like if you you look at all of those like like new age memes that get spread on Twitter about like visualizing your future and like making it happen and like how you can you can accomplish anything if you set your mind to it. And it's like. That's great when you're thinking about, like, your friend who wants to, like, open up her own, like, uh, garment studio. shop or whatever. Yeah, like, totally. Yoga studio. Who wants to start a bar. But, like, there's also Hitlers out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they have great follow through. Um, but, you know, our story today starts when the follow through uh, stops following through. Uh, on May 7th, 1945, uh, when General Alfred Jodl, uh, representing the German High Command, presented the Allies with the unconditional surrender of his nation and its armed forces. So we are we are starting at the end of Nazism uh, today, which is a nice little change of pace. Mm. Yeah. What year is it? Yeah. Never came back. Uh, 45, May 7th. That was the, the end of the war in, in Europe. Yeah, officially. So... Uh, in the wake of Germany's defeat, many of its top Nazis were, of course, well beyond the reach of justice. Uh, Adolf Hitler had, of course, shot himself. Uh, Joseph Goebbels uh, had blown himself and his wife up with a grenade. Uh, Heinrich Himmler had been captured, but had chosen to eat poison rather than face up to his crimes. But a lot of high-ranking Nazis had been caught. There was Hermann Goering, uh, who was the uh, the head of the Luftwaffe and like the former like second-in-command to uh, to Adolf Hitler. Um, He got taken alive. Also taken was Julius Stryker, editor of Der Stürmer, and the man most responsible for shaping the party's early propaganda efforts. We don't talk about Stryker a lot because, like, Goebbels became a big name, but Stryker was, like, kind of the Steve Bannon of the Third Reich. Like, he was the first, like, propaganda head who, like, really got, like, their messaging and shit on point. And they kind of dumped him once they got into power because he was a huge asshole. Um, but he was he was a real critical figure in like the night of long knives and helping to ignite a lot of anti-Jewish hatred. So people wanted him like it's good that he got captured, even though he was kind of out of the picture for most of the 40s in a real way. So you still pay the price if you're a bastard early on and you get out of there. Yeah, oh. I think so. You wouldn't. Would you want a guy like if someone like in 1945 was like, hey, man, I stopped being a Nazi in 1940. Uh, like you wouldn't be like, well, all right, <laughs> you missed the worst years. <laughs> you get a pass. I would love to give people yeah. a pass. You know what I mean? If it's like if you'll just stop being an asshole, we'll let you we'll let you go. 
I mean, there's a point at which that's okay. Like, uh, if you're a guy who, like, marches around with a Nazi organization for a while, a couple of years, but you don't, like, participate <laughs> in any attacks, you don't, like, sell anybody any guns, you don't kill anybody, and you're like, ah, oh, this is fucked up, and you leave, like, fine. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to uh, uh, be, like, murdered or anything. But, like, at the point at which the Holocaust happens, I feel like the guys who, you know, weren't as active later in the Reich like still fuck you dude like <laughs> yeah you can still pay with your life and you know there was an element of this that was uh, they let a lot of top nazis off actually like the 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 prosecute even of the nazis that we caught or who survived the war um the prosecution wasn't particularly thorough um famously adolf eichmann who was the the main logistical mind behind the holocaust fled to south america he was eventually caught and tried but not for years later Dr. Mengele, uh, the infamous Dr. Death, escaped. Um, but, like, also, like, th- like those are kind of more famous cases. Um, have you ever heard of the Einsatzgruppen? No. I just read about some guy, though, that had escaped and was living in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Did you read about this? It was a news story a couple yeah. weeks ago. But he had oh, just yeah. been living, like, a regular life in Ohio for, like, years. Wasn't he a Nazi? yeah. Yeah, I think he was a concentration camp guard. Usually when you hear about those guys who made it to a super old age, they were either concentration camp guards or Einsatzgruppen uh, dudes. And those were like m- mobile German military units during the invasion of Russia who just like shot hundreds of tens, like tens of thousands of people in single actions to death. Like they were the first stage of, of the Holocaust. And the vast majority, like we captured those guys, we had documentation on what they did, and we just let most of them go. And a lot of them were able to immigrate later. Like, there's some really crazy stories. There were even, like, one or two SS members who later joined the U.S. military. Like, one of them died fighting in Vietnam. Like, it's it, we didn't <laughs> prosecute most of these guys. That's um, hilarious. Yeah, so when you get a guy like Stryker, like, arrested and tried, like, you can say, like, well, he wasn't really a part of the later party's efforts, but also, like, fuck him. You got to get rid of all these people. Like, you got you to gotta punish him when you can. Um, and it was kind of random. Like, they, they chose not to arrest and punish more of the Einsatzgruppen because they only had so many chairs in the courtroom in Nuremberg, and they didn't <laughs> want to, like, get more chairs. <laughs> They're like, we need a stadium for all these guys. <laughs> yeah, it was a little, it wasn't just like they didn't want to drag in more chairs. It was like the court was only made to hold so many defendants, so they limited the number of people they tried. But it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, build a bigger court. It's World War II. (laughs) So also captured was Field Marshal William Keitel, uh, Hitler's yes-man general. Um, During the invasion of Poland, Keitel had issued criminal orders that had allowed the arrest and execution of Jews and other civilian noncombatants. While Keitel was not an enthusiastic backer of the Holocaust, he gave orders that required the Wehrmacht, the German military, to aid in the extermination of Jews captured in the Eastern Front and send them to death camps. So he's like a perfect example of the fundamental moral cowardice at the heart of the German military. He was not a guy who would have been a Nazi if he hadn't have had to been, but he was a Nazi because it was good for his career. And he didn't want to have his soldiers wipe out innocent people, but he also didn't care enough about it to stop it from happening. And he gave them orders to do so because he was that, that was his job. Uh, he fought, thought it was justified by that. So he, he's a piece of shit, but in a different way than like one of the Nazis who's like rabidly champing at the bit to kill, you know, Jewish people. 
Like, in some ways, he's even worse, because at least that Nazi, like, b- believes in something, right? And Kaitel's like, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna fight this, because I, I think my job as a German general is more important. I don't know. It's a complicated moral issue, but he's a piece of shit for sure. But our our guy, our main guy, is our is the Steve Bannon comparison, right? Well, he's 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 one of them. He's definitely the one I think is most culpable of the guys who get the, the two who are most culpable in genocide of the people who are tried at Nuremberg are Julius Stryker and and Hermann Goering. When you're talking about like the guys at the top level of the of the party who are who are responsible, now there were other guys too. Like one of the people captured was Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Uh, he's the man who had succeeded Reinhard Heydrich, who was the the architect of the Holocaust. Heydrich was assassinated in like '42, but he planned the Holocaust. Uh, and Kaltenbrunner was the guy who took his job afterwards as head of the Reich Security Main Office. So he was a major architect of the Holocaust. Um, another was Hans Frank, uh, an OG Nazi, a former member of the Tula Cult Society and the governor of Poland under the Nazi regime. Uh, Frank had been basically like the guy who had helped to organize the execution of Poland's Jewish population because he was in charge of Poland once the Nazis took over. So he's a big bad guy, too. Um, And then you've got Joachim von Ribbentrop, uh, who was Hitler's diplomatic emissary and like the guy in charge of his like plan to kind of try to navigate international diplomacy to get what the Nazis wanted before the war started. So like a lot of bad guys in short, like you got a lot of really shitty dudes who need to be punished. And, you know, you miss most of the heavy hitters, but like it's still a pretty solid docket of people who need to be punished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's how. Yeah. Wasn't there a lot of you said some one of the guys fled to South America? Didn't a lot of them go a to like Brazil to and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them went to Brazil, uh, to Argentina, um, Bolivia, and in fact, interestingly enough, um, Ernst Rome, who was the head of the Brown Shirts uh, before the Nazis came to power, he was executed by Hitler shortly after they came to power because he was like seen as kind of an unstable guy. But he was a big part of the Nazis coming to power. He, like, organized their street fighting movement and stuff in the years <laughs> when they were rising. Um, at one point, he had, like, a um, a falling out with Hitler, and he moved to Bolivia for a couple of years to train the Bolivian military. Um, so, like, that, there and, like, there's still echoes of that in the Bolivian, like, uh, government and stuff today. The fact that this, like, Nazi was a major architect of, like, the security state over there. It's wild. That's so funny. It's like they're a band and he's like, okay, I'm going to go do my own thing in Bolivia, man. This isn't working out for me in Germany. (laughs) And and in fact, Ernst Röhm is often called the John Lennon of Nazism. (laughs) That's hilarious. And he was shot early. Yeah. So yeah, it really really actually does check out quite a lot. (laughs) So where we are at the start of this, 1945, we've arrested a bunch of top Nazis Uh, And no one's really sure what to do with them, right? So, like, it's clear that the Germans have uh, committed war crimes on a historical scale. But, like, what does that mean in terms of what kind of actions you take? Like, people thought that there should be a trial, but how do you try them? Whose laws do you try these people under? There's no international legal system in a meaningful sense of the word at this point. Certainly not one that presents, like, the underpinnings of how you would try people. Do they have rules about war crimes at this time? Yeah, but they weren't really enforced, and it was never really clear what you were supposed to do in a lot of cases. Like, they had rules against—we talk about this in a recent episode—they had rules against using chemical weapons, but then Italy used chemical weapons on Ethiopia, and no one did anything. 
it oh. was it's kind of like when Obama made his red line on Syria. It's like we're clear we don't want people doing this, but what do we do when they do it? You know? Right. Right. Um, which has kind of always been the problem with this sort of thing. So, like, you've got these guys. You can't try them under German laws, obviously, because they were not breaking German law, <laughs> right? Because it was the Nazis. But then do you try them under American law? How, how do you justify that? They're not in the United States. They're not in Britain. Maybe some of them did some stuff in France, but, like, even that's kind of wonky. Do you try them under the laws of the individual nations where they occupied and committed their crimes? It's like, it's a really complicated question. You can't just do whatever you want, right? Because the problem with the Nazis is they did whatever the fuck they wanted. And like at the end of this war, the saner heads are trying to be like, we should establish some sort of system to stop this. And if you're going to not fuck that up, the system itself has to be as legitimate as you can make it, which means you can't like half-ass it and just be like, ah, oh, we'll just try them under US law or whatever. Like you can't mm-hmm. do that, right? So it's like, it's kind of a really messy question. And it's sort of try to solve it. The four great powers at the end of the war, the Soviet Union, the United States, Great Britain and France, uh, met together in London in June of 1945 to hammer out the framework that would establish an international tribunal to try these men. Now, some of the jurisprudence they sketched out during this is kind of wonky. Um, for example, it's well established in most nations that you can't write a law and then punish people who broke it before it was a law. This is called ex post facto justice, and it's mm-hmm. illegal in most nations. But it kind of had to be ex post facto justice because, like, nobody had written laws about some of the shit the Nazis did. But you can't just let them get off for the Holocaust because nobody was like, don't murder people in gas chambers. Totally. So it's it's complicated. Like... So they put together a charter for this tribunal to try these guys, um, and it specifically outlines that individuals can be punished for their membership in what are called criminal organizations, even if the criminal nature of that organization was established after uh, their period of membership in it, which is what like gets guys like Stryker and stuff. Um, the charter also establishes that individuals could be punished for crimes against humanity, even if those crimes had not actually been illegal in the nation they were committed in at the time. So this is kind of like uh, uh, this is pretty groundbreaking stuff, and it's not something we ever really returned to as a species, which is kind of a bummer. Um, I mean, a little bit after the Bosnian genocides and stuff, but... Was everybody on board, like, internationally with, like, this is how it should go down? Yeah, yeah I think for, for World War... In the wake of World War II, I think pretty much everybody was on... This is one of those rare instances where, like... I mean, there are some disagreements, but where, like, Russia and the U.S. and Great Britain are all kind of, like... We got to... There's got to be, like, a big thing that we all do for this. Like, it, we can't just... Like, it can't just be one country executing its prisoners or whatever. Like, that's not enough. And, yeah, so this is, like, the one time most of the world agrees on like an a, a, like the execution of international justice. Um, and that's kind of cool. Um, now, since uh, the people being prosecuted here are Nazis, it's not easy to care about like the fact that some of the things they did would be considered illegal in like US courts, like charging people for crimes that weren't crimes when they committed them. Um, But it is worth noting that some of the precedent behind the Nuremberg trial is really unsettling. Um, Charles Wysansky, a federal judge in the U.S., initially led the charge against the Nuremberg trials. Uh, He didn't want there to be trials because he worried about the precedent they might state uh, and what could be done in the future as a result. So, like, if we're declaring that you can make something illegal and punish people who did it when it wasn't illegal – if we're doing that now for the Nazis, sure, fuck the Nazis, but how does that – you could do that for anything in the future. 
Um, and like that could end in a really dark place. And he has a point. Like that's concerning, right? It's it's something worth thinking about. Aren't we still wrestling with this stuff like post nine eleven and about oh yeah these exact same questions about when people can be tried and whatever? Yeah, I mean now there is something of an international legal framework, so it's a little bit easier. Like back then, it was totally like you know, kind of kind of the Wild West in terms of international law. And now there is something of like a framework set up for that. And one of the things that, um, so like Wysansky, who was the guy who was initially against having a Nuremberg trial, he actually changes his mind over the course of the trial because the prosecutors do such a good job of bringing forward evidence of Nazi war crimes. And Wysansky decides that even if the methods used to like create this legal framework were kind of fucked up, the principle of international law needed to exist to punish crimes against humanity, and it's worth it. Um, I'm going to read from something he wrote, uh, actually in The Atlantic in 1946. The reasons for my change are that the failure of the international community to attach the criminal label to such universally condemned conduct would be more likely to promote an arbitrary and discriminatory action by public authorities and to undermine confidence in the proposition that international agreements are made to be kept than the failure of the international community to abide by the maxim that no act can be punished as a crime unless there was in advance of that act a specific criminal law. So he's like... Basically, he decides, yes, it's worrisome to try to prosecute these people for things that, like, weren't necessarily crimes before, but the consequences of not prosecuting these people um, are worse. Like, it will enable more bad behavior in the future. So this is like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, but we should do it. Right. Yeah, I'm giving a lot of background on this because I think it's interesting. It met met the threshold of egregiousness that they were like, we we have to do this, basically. It'd be worse to do nothing. Yeah. Now, in total, 185 people were indicted in the Nuremberg trial. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's not enough, but it's it's a good amount. Um, and like most of those people actually weren't sentenced to death. They were sentenced to like periods of jail time. And a lot of those sentences were actually commuted later. What? Um, it's kind of a fucked up story. Yeah, a lot of a lot of top Nazis, people who were like literally ordering mass killings had like their sentences commuted and went on to die peacefully. Happened to a ton of them. That's ton of terrible. Them. Super fucked up. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of reasons that different things like that happened, um, but it it happened a lot. Um, but twelve top Nazis were sentenced to die by hanging. Um, so there were twelve of these guys that an international court said, like, you know, even as like lax as we're being with punishing the Nazis, you motherfuckers, like, we can't let you live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. But this set off another question. Who's actually going to kill these guys? Like, (laughs) who do you bring in to execute one of the worst collections of bastards in, like, the whole history of humanity? And the answer, of course, is another piece of shit. And this brings me to the glorious tale of John C. Woods, America's hangman. I'm so excited. This This has been our long introduction. Yeah, he's a fun one. He's a fun guy. So... John C. Woods was born in Wichita, Kansas on June 5th, 1911. We have very little detail on his early life. One source I found just says, prior to his induction in the army, he lived in Eureka, Kansas. He was married with no children. Now, I can tell you from other reading I've done that his parents separated when he was young. One source even says they abandoned him and he was raised by his grandparents. Uh, We can infer that he didn't have an easy adolescence. When he attended uh, Wichita High School, which is now East High School in Wichita, 
uh, he dropped out after just two years, and he never graduated. So this is this is the guy we have executing our top Nazis, uh, one of America's finest high school dropouts, which really <laughs> is appropriate. Now, you know what doesn't drop out of high school? Ads and or products and services. Yep, yep. All of the products and services that support this show are high school graduates. None of them are college graduates. Valid Victorian. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little much. <laughs> I don't know that we can afford valedictorian products. Sophie, are any of these products valedictorians? Yeah, of course. All of them. Well, I think Sophie's lying. Maybe not all of them. Yeah. But, but, didn't, but didn't, you know who didn't, won't lie to you. But didn't Courtney say that everybody gets a first place medal? Yeah. So everybody's a valedictorian. I can't. Well, if you trust Sophie, trust that these products are all valedictorians. I don't, uh, we should really just roll out to ads at this point. Ads. Products. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. We're back. All right. So we're talking about John C. Woods, America's Hangman. Now, uh, on December 3rd, 1929, 18-year-old high school dropout John Woods joined the U.S. Navy and reported to duty somewhere on the West Coast, probably California. He was eventually assigned to the USS Saratoga, but almost immediately went AWOL and deserted. He was caught by the law in Colorado and sent back to California, where he was court-martialed. After being convicted, a Navy medical officer looked at John and recommended he receive a medical board examination. On April 23, 1930, they released this report. The patient, though not intellectually inferior, gives a history of repeatedly running counter to authority both before and since enlistment. Stigmata of degeneration are present, and the patient frequently bites his fingernails. He has a benign tumor of the, of the soft palate for which he refuses operation. His commanding officer and division officer state that he shows inaptitude and does not respond to instruction. He is obviously poor service material. This man has had less than five months' service. His disability is considered to be an inherent defect for which the service is in no way responsible. He is not considered a menace to himself or others. So the Navy diagnoses John with constitutional psychopathic inferiority without psychosis. Oh, my um, God. This is not a real diagnosis today. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of a nonsense term for, like, he doesn't want to be in the military. <laughs> but did they just pick him out? Were they like, we're going to... No, he joined. Uh, yeah, he joined the military. But for this assessment, were they like, things aren't going right. That's why we're going to give you this yeah. assessment? Well, because he... Yeah, he he runs away after five months, and he's been like a giant piece of shit before it. So they're like, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> and they we need to take a closer look. They sit look. him down. Yeah, yeah. And what they're saying is, he's like, he's gross. He doesn't take care of himself. He has like open sores all over his body. He's like a, a like a nasty, unshowered mess, and he doesn't do what anyone tells him to do. Um, and yeah, like they they diagnose him with constitutional psychopathic inferiority without psychosis. Um, which was originally coined in Germany in the 1880s to describe irredeemable criminals with antisocial characteristics. Uh, and in fact, a lot of people were gassed with this diagnosis under the Nazis. Um, but we just used it to say this guy shouldn't be in the Navy anymore. Uh, and John was discharged. So that's the end of his Navy career. Um, and you would think that it would be impossible for him to rejoin the military when one of the branches has kicked him out by saying he has psychopathic inferiority. <laughs> no way. He gets back in? Oh, of course he gets back in. Yeah, why not? Just a different branch. <laughs> yeah. So Woods uh, gets kicked out of the Navy for being a piece of shit. And he spends the next few years bumping from job to job and doing very poorly at all of those jobs. Uh, he wound up in a marriage that the sources I found just call scandalous without any other details. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what he did, um, but it was probably super shady given everything that comes later. Um, he was arrested at one point for writing a bad check. 
1933, at the age of 22, and basically out of options, John Woods joins the Civilian Conservation Corps. Have you ever heard of the CCC? Yeah, I feel like that was a thing. Was that, That's not a thing that people would have joined like when I was in high school, is it? No, 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 no. I don't th- like th- this. Was, I mean, I, I think there's yeah, like this was like a big thing in, in, during the New Deal in the 30s. Oh, um, so like you have the Great Depression. It fucks up the country and FDR, uh, his administration establishes this group of civilians who basically like we hire up all of the jobless young men in America and we have them go build parks and roads. Oh, and yeah. Infrastructure. Yes. Like a lot and of libraries our national parks, and yeah. all kinds of shit. Libraries. Yeah. All kinds of cool shit. It's one of the coolest things their government ever did. Uh, And I'm not just saying that because my grandpa would have starved to death without it. Um, But John was not a good fit for the CCC. uh, And he was dishonorably discharged several weeks later after going AWOL and refusing to do his job. So He loves to go AWOL. We're noticing a bit of a pattern here. Yes. (laughs) He loves to join quasi-military and military organizations and then leave. (laughs) Two paychecks and I'm out. Cool dude. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, enough to buy some cigarettes, and I am on the road. Yeah. Now, after failing at the Civilian Conservation Corps, John spent years barely making ends meet by working in construction and handling labor tasks on farms. He briefly worked for Boeing as a tool and die maker, but was not particularly good at this job, nor was he good at anything else, nor was he good at dealing with other human beings. People who knew John generally described him as slovenly and ill-kempt. You get the feeling he did not shower regularly. He dressed poorly, and he had a problem with authority. When he registered for selective service, which is like the draft in 1940, he was working as a part-time employee at a feed store in Kansas. So, not an inspiring tale so far uh, for this guy. No. Now, on December 7th, 1941, Japan made a significant error in judgment and bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, This led to the U.S. getting into World War II in pretty short order, and it led to a bunch of guys getting drafted into that war. And John C. Woods was one of them. Uh, He was drafted by the U.S. Army uh, and assigned to be a combat engineer, which is not the job you want this guy to have. No. (laughs) No, don't let this man build bridges. (laughs) So, yeah, the draft, they were just like, we'll take we'll take anybody. We need all hands on deck. Yeah, we, we, we'll take anybody and, like, we're not going to look into your background too much. I mean, a, a lot of people who weren't even 18 managed to join during the draft. <laughs> like, God. It was, uh, yeah, it was a fun time. Real fun time. Now, uh, he shouldn't have been able to join any branch of the armed services because he had a dishonorable discharge. But the DOD just doesn't seem to have noticed. Uh, the Department of Defense just, like, didn't look into it at all. It's, it's some cool stuff. Now, in 1943, John was assigned to Company B of the 37th Engineer Combat Battalion and the 5th Engineer Special Brigade, Uh, and he almost certainly took part in the D-Day landings on Omaha Beach uh, in 1944. Um, It's hard to say for sure, because the records aren't great, uh, and he was a huge liar, but most sources seem to suggest that he he did take part in the Normandy landings, um, which is some shit to deal with. Yeah. Um, Now... There's only one biographer who's ever written about this guy, as far as I can tell, and his name is French McLean. He's a former army officer, and he seems convinced that John Woods uh, took part in the landings and saw heavy combat and like saw a lot of his uh, the other guys in his unit die really horribly and was was kind of scarred by this as a result. I'm surprised, though, because he seems like nothing affects like he's the perfect guy to to do that kind of combat, actually. Right. 
because he he's not he doesn't process things the same way. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think I don't know that he was sad about his comrades dying as much as he was didn't want to die himself and was like, this is some bullshit. Like getting shot at is is some bullshit. Gotcha. Like, I don't I don't get the feeling that he was traumatized by losing friends because I don't think he was very good at making friends. Um, <laughs> but I get the feeling he was like, I don't want to die. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, fair. That's fair. Yeah. Like he's not a self-sacrificing kind of dude. So as the U.S. military and its allies started to advance through occupied Europe, uh, they faced the same problem that armies throughout all time have faced. Some of the hundreds and thousands of men fighting their way across the continent were pieces of shit. Uh, There were rapists, thieves, and murderers, uh, all present in the allied military that liberated Europe. Um, And again, like, this is the same as any other war in history. But in this case, the U.S. was extra concerned about optics uh, because the Nazis had been really brutal occupiers, and we were fighting a PR war as well. Allied command wanted to make it very clear that we weren't the same as the Nazis uh, and that our soldiers would not be treated the same. So, like, if they committed crimes on subject populations, we weren't just going to let them get away with it. Um, So this meant that American criminals, like soldiers who raped French women after D-Day, had to be punished like immediately and severely. Um, and not long after D-Day, several American soldiers were convicted via court-martial for the rapes of a number of French women, and they were sentenced to hang. Now, the only problem was that we didn't really have any hangmen set up to do the job. Uh, it wasn't really something we'd planned for super well. Um, and very few men, even in an army full of combat veterans, are actually ha- turned out to be willing to, like, hang a person like it's kind of hard to find people who are willing to do that job they had yeah. loads of guns with them why were they like the 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 most hu- humane thing or like the way that we have to deal with this is by some a super old school method yeah there's actually kind of neat reasoning to that um which is that you you execute soldiers by firing squad And the idea is that when a soldier has committed a crime like rape on a civilian, they don't get to be a soldier anymore. And so they don't get Mm. to die like a soldier anymore. Um, And I think that was the reasoning is like what these guys did is so fucked up. We're not going to give them the honor of of being shot. Um, Like there were guys we executed by firing squad for like lesser offenses and stuff. But like you don't get that if you rape a civilian woman. Like we're just going to hang you, which, you know. I don't know. That's kind of nice reasoning. <laughs> I, I like the reasoning. It just requires so much infrastructure. It does. It does. And they had not prepared for it, <laughs> which is like something the military is pretty common. They uh, they rarely prepare for a lot of the things they wind up needing to do. So like they need a hangman and almost nobody winds up willing to take the gig, uh, even if it means getting out of the line of battle and avoiding combat. But John C. Woods was super ready to not do any more combat. And when he, yeah, like he was like, oh, yeah, fuck this shit. And so when he heard the army was looking for a hangman, he jumped at the opportunity. Now, he was not the only person to volunteer. Uh, and so he distinguished himself from the small crowd of applicants by claiming to have helped execute people by hanging back in the United States. Woods claimed that he'd hung two people in Texas and two more in Oklahoma. <laughs> He well, lied no, what, on his resume. That's so <laughs> yeah, funny. He absolutely. <laughs> he write on his hangman's resume. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that time I pretended to speak French so I could get this podcasting gig. Is that real? Don't. Oh, don't tell Jack that, Sophie. <laughs> Copy. <laughs> now, 
yeah. Uh, so yeah, Woods claimed to have hung several people in the past, um, and the judge advocate who was like the, you know, that, that's who like handles military justice, and they were the people who were like doing the hiring in this case, recommended that we check this out and like verify that he'd actually executed people before, but nobody actually did anything. <laughs> um, McLean, the author of a book called American Hangman, which is again the only biography on John Woods, says... The army doesn't check to find out. I'm sure there was the thought, how complicated could a hanging be? So, like, the like the people in charge are like, we should at least make sure this guy knows what he's doing. But then they don't because it's too hard. And they're like, ah, well, what, what's the worst that could happen? Like, if he wants the job that bad, it's just hanging people. That This is pre-Google, too. It's like, you couldn't be yeah. sure that he could figure out a hanging. Now yeah. it's like, if you left yeah. someone in a room for 30 minutes, they could probably tell you how to hang someone, but... That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that he doesn't have Google to tell him how to hang people correctly will be a factor in this story later because he's never good at it. (laughs) 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 Um, I mean, I guess you could like he did hang all the people he was supposed to. We'll we'll see. Like it's a complicated determining whether or not someone's good at hanging. (laughs) Now, um, the army decided he was as good as they were going to get uh, and they hired him. Now, McLean has some interesting opinions on Wood's motivation for taking the job. He says, he did not get wounded on Omaha Beach, but he saw a bunch of guys get killed. I'm sure he thought, I do not want to go through that experience again. He was right on the border with Germany and about to cross the Rhine River. He probably thought he'd get hammered again. He volunteers to get out of the combat engineers. He's accepted and promoted from private to master sergeant, and his pay goes from 50 to $138 a month. So in other words, like, uh, like... This guy is part of, like, because no one else is, like, so few people are willing to do the hangman's job, he gets, like, immediately a massive promotion, like, basically, like, within the enlisted ranks, going from private to master sergeant, is almost going as high as you can possibly go. And he basically triples his income. And he triples his income. Yeah, it's a great gig. Like, and he doesn't get shot at anymore? (laughs) Like, if you're a sociopath who doesn't care about, like anything but your own benefit this is a great move for john c woods like he fucking nails it here and uh frank mclean who is himself a retired army colonel uh describes woods as a psychopath who lied his way into the hangman's job and only became the army's hangman to avoid combat so like everyone who looks into this is like this guy is a piece of shit and he's doing this so he doesn't have to fight (laughs) there there are not really good reasons to be a hangman though or i don't know yeah I don't, I'm going to guess very few people I would describe as like pleasant human beings have done the job of hangman. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And it's probably hard to hire anyone who doesn't suck for that job. Um, Apologies to all the hangmen in the audience. I know there's a lot of you, um, (laughs) but yeah, this. So for the rest of World War II, John C. Woods was a hangman, uh, and he executed a little over 30 U.S. soldiers for a variety of crimes. Now, he was not very good at this job, and I'm going to quote from an article in the U.K. Sunday Express. Quote, his inexperience led many condemned men to painfully long deaths. Woods didn't weigh or measure his victims, and in his early career didn't stretch the rope beforehand so that it wouldn't lengthen under weight. He didn't tie a traditional hangman's noose, but use a cowboy noose he'd seen in the movies with 13 <laughs> knots that he claimed he'd invented. <laughs> oh my god. Uh... So these guys would just, some of them would just not even be at the right height 
right? No. When, so they're just they slowly down? strangling. Yeah, you're supposed to break the neck quickly. It's supposed to be a pretty quick way, but a lot of John's patients take a, a, a long time to die because he doesn't do the things you're supposed to do to the rope to make sure it's going to be the proper level of tautness. And he's like using a knot he saw in a movie and 13 knots that he made up on his own. And like, he's just... He's like, I'm a pioneer of this technique. Oh my God. Yeah, like people have been hanging each other for thousands of years. Like we have the knot technology pretty solid at this point. <laughs> like... But this gets back to what you asked a little earlier, what I think unites all of these guys. And it is that reckless self-confidence. This guy being like, I don't need to read on how to hang a guy. <laughs> I'll I can't just believe make there was the no myself. one there to oversee him. They just didn't there care. There was, but like, well, also like how many people have seen a proper hanging go down? <laughs> but can't you tell if you're like, uh, that guy was, that, that took like yeah, an hour. Yeah, but who's... <laughs> It's a crowded war. Like, a lot's <laughs> going on. This is nobody's number one priority. <laughs> sure, sure. He does kind of slide through the cracks for a while. Now, uh, June 29th, 1945, is the first time John C. Woods winds up in the media spotlight. Uh, that's because three German civilians had been sentenced to die for the murder of 2nd Lieutenant Lester Roos of the U.S. Army Air Corps. Newspapers from this time report that Woods had been a veteran executioner before the war and that he'd executed several hundred people. All of this was a lie. Um, but as soon as the news starts talking to Woods, he starts claiming that he's on his, like, 300th execution, um, when it's really, like, he, he's done maybe a dozen or so at this point. This like, guy. He's, he knows how to do it. Yeah. So by the time the war ended, Woods had executed 34 Americans, which is more than a third of the U.S. soldiers executed in Europe and North Africa during the war. Uh, once the war ended, though, is when his hanging career really took off. See, the international community needed someone to execute all the top Nazis convicted at Nuremberg. It was not a job for the faint-hearted, since there were still quite a few Nazis hanging out in Europe, and the chance of being murdered by one was far from zero. Lucky for the Allies, John C. Woods did not care about that. In fact, he didn't seem to think much at all about the consequences of taking on this job. While John had almost certainly been lying about his past as an executioner, the almost two years he spent on the job before the Nuremberg trials seems to have inculcated in him a deep love of the craft. And as a result, he not only uh, performed the executions, he designed and built the gallows that the Third Reich surviving war criminals would be hung from. So that's, he, he's like, he's graduated now. He's like making the scaffolding and everything. Is he getting um, better? Is he actually better at his no, job? No, no. No, oh, God. I mean, better probably, but he does not build these gallows well. Um, McLean and several sources I found claim that Woods deliberately made the trapdoors of the gallows too small so that the condemned men would hit their heads on the way down. <laughs> I, I, Which the Nazis like, deserved it, but it this is, is it, fucked it's up. like yeah, they're, <laughs> it's it's one of those things. He's absolutely a piece of shit, but also like I'm not mad. <laughs> Like, I'm not mad someone got in one last dig at the Nazis. Like, totally. Um, now, I should note that this is not, like, um, 100% agreed on. Like, John Woods is somebody that, like, there's actually a surprising number of historians who study hangmen, and those kinds of nerds debate about this guy quite a lot. Um, some will claim that, like, the fact that his trapdoors were too small was simple accidental incompetence. Some will say that it was uh, purposeful. Um, I'm not a gallows expert, um, but I just want to note that this is like there's debate over as to why the trapdoors were too small. 
Now, after a fair amount of digging online, I was able to find a book which is available online for free. It's uh, released in the Creative Commons called A Hangman at War by Richard Clark Traugott Witz. Uh, it seems pretty well researched, um, but I don't know how to determine Traugott-Witz's competence to talk about stuff like this, but it, it seems pretty well researched. Uh, and Traugott-Witz defends Woods's competence as a hangman and gallows designer. Uh, his book claims that Woods actually built a special new sort of trap door for the gallows specifically because he'd noticed in his other executions that condemned men were hitting their faces on the way down. But if that's the case, then he fucked it up because several of the Nazis Woods executed smashed their faces open on his shitty trapdoor on their way down. So while Traugott Witt seems to defend him on this, I think I side with McLean in that it was probably either him fucking up or him purposefully fucking up the gallows because he didn't like Nazis. It's, it's, it's a, a complicated case. I don't know who's right about this. I should note that Traugott Witt's book still definitely paints a picture of John C. Woods as a sociopath. Uh, in the section about the execution of three war criminals in June 1945, he notes this. Life ran a five-page report on the trials and executions with 30 photos. In the caption referring to Back's execution, Life claimed, After this hanging, as after the other ones, the hangman wept, a statement which no one will find credible who ever looked into Woods' career and character for a single minute. So, <laughs> even this guy's big defender is like, no, he, he, he didn't give a shit about people. Um... It's interesting that life needed to, uh, uh, I don't know, lie and make it seem like he was a, he, like he felt bad about hanging people. Yeah. Some sort of hero, yeah. Yeah, like they just, it was it was such a gross thing to watch a hanging that you need to inject some humanity into the event, even if the guy doing it clearly is doing it just to not get shot at and doesn't give a fuck about the fact that he's killing somebody. So, it's but, an interesting- but, but after the war, yeah. he's just doing it for the money, right? I mean, he's still in the military. Yeah. But yeah, it's better money. So, you know what's also better money? Products and services. That's right. That's right. And these products and services, I think, if they could, would also build deliberately shoddy gallows to make the hanging of Nazi war criminals less pleasant. Hmm. We support that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we go. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. All right. We're back. So we're talking about John C. Wood's Real piece of shit. And I want to talk a little bit about his personality um, before we get into his actual execution of the Nazi high command. Um, Now, one of our most prolific sources on the personality of John C. Woods was Herman Obermeyer, uh, a journalist and a publisher who during the war was a military clerk. Uh, He had a number of interactions with Woods, and he seems to have hated him. And he said this after the war, quote, John Woods was a short, muscular sort of man, and I would describe him as kind of the world's flotsam. He talked the language of the hobos and flotsams and the people who do these kinds of jobs. He was, I think, an honest craftsman who took pride in his job, and he thought it was a very good job. He had 30 executions a year, maybe, and the rest of the time, the army treated him very well because he had a skill that nobody else had in the army. So he was allowed to be drunk the rest of the time and do whatever he wanted, so long as he showed up for these things and performed them well. (laughs) That's hilarious. He does have like sort of a Popeye, Mr. Clean vibe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to do this. So let's give him extra money and let him be drunk all the time. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, That is kind of the reasoning that iHeartRadio has for me. But I only rarely (laughs) execute people. Now. At least once, Woods' drinking led to him fucking up and showing up late to an execution. His excuse was that he'd been unable to find the right kind of rope. Uh, And I'm going to quote now from the book Hangman at War. He shuffled into the general's room, boots unpolished, and instead of chewing him out, the general jumped up and exclaimed, Glad to see you, Woods! Any other soldier, when walking into a superior officer's room, would take care that his dress was impeccable, would salute crisply, and not expect a more cordial greeting than at ease. The army gave Woods very special treatment indeed. Once Obermeyer even got a nanny's job, to make sure Woods didn't get drunk and fail to appear at an execution. So, like, he gets drunk and shows up late to kill somebody, and he shows up to the general to get disciplined, and the general's just, like, super nice to him. Because, again, nobody wants to do this job. Which, like, there's almost something inspiring about, like, even in, like, an an organization of hundreds of thousands of trained killers, it's so hard to find someone who's willing to kill an unarmed man that, like... I know. I think this is heartening, (laughs) really. Right? They, they have to let him be drunk and be a piece of shit because, like, no one else will do it. Yeah, it is kind of heartening. Yeah. 
Like, even in, like, at this point, all these guys have seen horrible things. Like, they're still not willing to do what this guy does. It's and his of previous job, the other guys are like, I don't want to kill my buddies. And he's like, I yeah. will be the first to kill an American soldier. Let, oh, let me out. I don't give a fuck. I'll kill anybody. Yeah, let me yeah. out. Screw it. Yeah. So, um,. This then, this 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 drunken hobo, like executioner, was the man selected to hang the greatest collection of war criminals ever incarcerated and sentenced by a court. Uh, and some articles I've read on this suggest that the choice of this drunken, dirty hobo man as executioner was a deliberate move by Allied authorities, a sort of last middle finger to the leadership cadre of the Third Reich, like basically saying like. Like, we we respect you pieces of shit so little that this is the guy we're hiring to kill you. Like, we can't even get someone who can come in without liquor on their breath to do this job. <laughs> like, And I'm not sure, I don't, I think that's more sort of like wishful thinking than actual probably realistic. Like, I, I think that all of the, the people in the high command are probably a little bit too professional for that. They probably just didn't have anybody else. Um... But it is worth noting that the choice of hanging as a method of execution was picked to send a direct message to men like Hermann Goering and Field Marshal Keitel. Um, as I discussed earlier, like sh- wait, shooting sorry. firing squad is the, w- the yeah because we talked about this earlier and you said that the shooting was more humane, right, or more honorable. It's, it, it's what you do to yeah, it's what you do to soldiers. Be- being shot is an honorable way for a soldier to die. You know. Oh right, and so like, for the sense. so yeah. for the American guys that didn't make good on what they were supposed to be like mm-hmm. as soldiers, that's why we hung them as yeah. civilians. And the same thing yeah. for these guys now. Yeah, and these guys, like the Nazi generals, like Hermann Goering was a, a fighter ace in World War One. He was like the guy who took over Manfred von Richthofen's squadron after the Red Baron died. Um, and uh, he was also like obviously in the military hierarchy of the Third Reich. He was the head of the Luftwaffe. Um, and, and Field Marshal Keitel was like the highest ranking or at least one of the highest ranking German generals left alive. Uh, so was General Yodel. Um, these were military men and like the thing they wanted to protect above everything else was their military honor. Um, and like they protested hugely against the fact that they were going to be executed by hanging. Goering repeatedly said that he was willing to be shot. He had no problem with a soldier's death, um, but he thought that hanging was the worst thing they could do to a soldier. And that's how most of these guys felt. Um, one of the major sources for this episode was a book called The Nazi Hunters by Andrew Nikorsky. Uh, and it cites a guy named Fritz Sockhell, uh, a Nazi who oversaw the slave labor program. So he was the guy like responsible for organizing like mass slavery and like labor gangs that killed tens of thousands of people. Here's how he complained about the court's decision to hang him instead of shooting him. Quote, Death by hanging, that at least I did not deserve. The death part, all right, but that, that I did not deserve. Oh, um, my God. This fucking yeah. guy. Also, <laughs> this fucking guy. <laughs> how, how much were any of them like, yes, what I did was horrible? Or yeah, mean, actually, are they just quibbling about how they're going to die? Some of the, a couple of them were. Uh, Hans Frank, who was the the the, the head of, of Poland, of occupied Poland, and like c- guilty of unspeakable war crimes and facilitating the mass extermination of Poland's Jewish population, um, seemed to honestly, deeply regret what he'd done and like fully accepted that he needed to be executed. Uh, and like shit, like, like some of them, I don't know, like you can argue like how real all that was, or if he was just trying to like get some sympathy at the end. Some of them claimed that like, 
yeah, like I uh, 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 something bad should happen to me. I don't know. Like I'm I'm hesitant to like go too much detail about Frank just because he was still a gigantic piece of shit, and I don't want to like give him credit mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for like uh, acting like slightly less of a piece of shit right before dying. But guys like Keitel and Yodel and uh, Gehring are pieces of shit right to the end and whine like babies about the fact that they're being hung after helping to facilitate the conquest of a regime that gassed millions to death and burnt their corpses. So, um, yeah, all of their requests to be shot instead of hung uh, were denied. But not all of the 11 condemned Nazis survived to meet John C. Woods at the gallows. Hermann Goering, in a last act of defiance, had managed to secret a cyanide capsule on his person. He poisoned himself and died horribly, but privately, avoiding the hangman's noose. So that's a bummer. You hate to see it. Yeah. Now... The remaining condemned Nazis, however, were unable to escape, and they all wound up meeting John C. Woods on the morning of October 16th, 1946. On that day, Woods was, as Obermeyer puts it, one of the most important men in the world, and he flaunted that fact by showing up with dirty pants, an unpressed jacket, (laughs) a crumpled hat, and reeking of booze. He was clearly unwashed, and his teeth were unbrushed. This is the man who led 10 Nazi war criminals to their deaths. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then he peed on him yeah, right before. Yeah, you kind of love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> just, just took a big old piss right on him. Uh, I'm going to quote now from a selection from the book, The Nazi Honors. At 1.11 a.m., Joachim von Ribbentrop, Hitler's foreign minister, was the first to arrive in the gym. The original plan was for the guards to escort the prisoners from their cells without manacles. But following Goering's suicide, the rules had changed. Ribbentrop's hands were bound as he entered, and when the manacles were replaced with a leather strap. After mounting the scaffold, the former diplomatic wizard of Nazidom, as Smith archly put it, proclaimed to the assembled witnesses, God protect Germany. Allowed to make an additional short statement, the men who had played a critical role in launching Germany's attacks on country after country concluded. My last wish is that Germany realize its entity and an understanding be reached between East and West. I wish peace to the world. Woods then placed the black hood over his head, adjusted the rope, and pulled the lever that opened the trap, sending Ribbentrop to his death. Two minutes later, Field Marshal Keitel entered the gym. Smith duly noted that he was the first military leader to be executed under the new concept of international law, the principle that professional soldiers cannot escape punishment for waging aggressive wars and permitting crimes against humanity with the claim that they were dutifully following orders of superiors. Keitel maintained his military bearing to the last. Looking down from the scaffold before the noose was put around his neck, he spoke loudly and clearly, betraying no signs of nervousness. I call on God Almighty to have mercy on the German people, he declared. More than two million German soldiers went to their deaths for the fatherland before me. I now follow my sons, all for Germany. While both Ribbentrop and Keitel were still hanging from their ropes, there was a pause in the proceedings. An American general representing the Allied Control Commission allowed the 30 or so people in the gym to smoke, and almost everyone immediately lit up. (laughs) So they kill these two guys, they have them a smoke break, because it's the 40s. They're like, oh shit, we need a cigarette, okay. I mean, I would have a cigarette then. That's the time to have a fucking cigarette. Totally. (laughs) Now, there would be one more smoke break over the course of the day. And true to form, Woods' executions were as sloppy as his dress. Joachim von Ribbentrop took 14 minutes to die. Keitel choked to death for almost half an hour. It is possible that both of these were due to errors, either in the construction of the gallows or in the type of noose Woods tied. But McLean, Woods' biographer, believes he intentionally botched at least one job. The hanging of Julius Stryker, the first arch-propagandist to the Nazi party. 
And I'm going to quote one more time from the Nazi hunters. This is a good bit. At 2.12, Smith noted that the ugly dwarfish little man, Julius Stryker, the editor and publisher of the venomous Nazi party newspaper Der Sturmer, walked to the gallows, his face visibly twitching. Asked to identify himself, he shouted, Heil Hitler! Allowing for a rare reference to his own emotions, Smith confessed, the shriek sent a shiver down my back. As Stryker was pushed up the final steps on top of the gallows to position him for Woods, he glared at the witnesses and screamed, Purimfest, 1946! The reference was to the Jewish holiday that commemorates the execution of Haman, who, according to the Old Testament, was planning to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Asked formally for his last words, Stryker shouted, The Bolsheviks will hang you one day! While Woods was placing the black hood over his head, Stryker could be heard saying, Adele, my dear wife. But the drama was far from over. The trapdoor opened with a bang, with Stryker kicking as he went down. As the rope snagged taut, it swung wildly, and the witnesses could hear him groaning. Woods came down from the platform and disappeared behind the black curtain that concealed the dying man. Abruptly, the groan ceased, and the rope stopped moving. Smith and the other witnesses were convinced that Woods had grabbed Stryker and pulled him down hard, strangling him. Had something gone wrong, or was this no accident? Lieutenant Stanley Tillis, who was charged with coordinating the Nuremberg and earlier hanging of war criminals, later claimed that Woods had deliberately placed the coils of Stryker's noose off-center so that his neck would not be broken during his fall. Instead, he would strangle. Everyone in the chamber had watched Stryker's performance, and none of it was lost on Woods. I knew Woods hated Germans, and I watched his face become florid and his jaws clench. He wrote, adding that Woods' intent was clear. I saw a small smile cross his lips as he pulled the hangman's handle. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> this guy I I feel like you have to either he sucks at his job or he's yeah. at least good enough to fuck people over. You know, it's I think where I am on this is he was bad at his job, but it was a job that the best way to do it was poorly. Because Nazis don't deserve a nice clean execution. Totally. And yeah. you can't as the government you have to try to give them one because otherwise you're you're not you're not upholding the kind of moral high ground you need to uphold to try to make the point that they were trying to make by trying these guys in a court of law. I don't want our government to have tortured them. I don't want our government to have executed them painfully, but I do want an incompetent shitty asshole hangman to fuck it up so that it's a little bit worse for them. That's I think is kind of like the perfect balance of mm -hmm, justice mm -hmm. in as much as you can achieve it here. <laughs> yeah. Agreed, but so now, he he straight up strangled the last guy with his bare oh, hands. Oh yeah, well, a striker wasn't the last. No, I think he like pulled him down. Like okay. you know, the, the guy's strangling, he pulled him to like strangle him faster. And and there's debate, you know. Um, that guy, you know, one of the witnesses who is there with uh, Woods one day says that he thinks that um. Stryker fucked that up so that it would be more painful because he hated Germans and he wanted to get to strangle a guy. McLean, Woods' biographer, argues that Woods intentionally fucked up Stryker's execution, not because he hated Germans, but because the Nazi propagandist had stolen the show from him by, like, making a big, like, like, like... Speech uh, and stuff? By ba yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, McLean wrote, at an execution, John Woods wanted to and insisted on playing the lead actor... So, like, that's McLean's angle is that, like, Woods was just jealous that he'd stolen the spotlight for a little while and he wanted to take it back. And, like, yeah. Oh, my. Uh, it's wild. Yeah. Now, halfway through the execution of these 10 men, which were all executed on the same day in a couple of hours, uh, John C. Woods was asked how he felt by an American officer who I think was concerned for his mental health, like, wanted to make sure he was okay, you know, because it's, it's a tough thing. <laughs> Woods' response was, wins early, chow. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'm fine. When do we eat? <laughs> oh my god! 
Uh, gotta love it. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the executions, Woods agreed to do an interview with Stars and Stripes magazine. He bragged that the hangings had gone off without a hitch. I hanged these 10 Nazis in Nuremberg, and I am proud of it. I did a good job. Everything went A number one. I have never been to an execution which went better. I am only sorry that that fellow Gehring escaped me. I'd have been at my best for him. No, I wasn't nervous. I haven't got any nerves. You can't afford nerves in my job. But this Nuremberg job was just what I wanted. I wanted this job so terribly that I stayed here a bit longer, though I could have gone home earlier. So that's what he claims to the news. And from Woods' point of view, the only hitch in the whole day seems to have come afterwards, at a post-execution celebration in the NCO's club. Woods was informed that he would not be allowed to drink more than his nightly ration of four ounces of liquor. He demanded that the sergeant in charge break out the booze, and eventually got so violent over the sergeant's refusal to do so that the commandant of the guard was called on him. Woods never got an increase in his liquor ration. He just got belligerent afterwards. Yeah. He does deserve yeah, he, some extra shots, I think, for hanging the Nazis. He does deserve some extra shots. If, you, if anything deserves shots, it's hanging the Nazis. But Now, uh, Woods did spend a lot of time drunk in the immediate wake of the executions, though. Obermeyer recalled uh, a more or less drunken moment after the hangings when another soldier asked John how he'd feel about dying via hanging. And John C. Woods responded... You know, I think it's a damn good way to die. As a matter of fact, I'll probably die that way myself. <laughs> <laughs> How did he figure? Well, what the soldier asked basically that question you asked. Like, what the, what the hell are you talking about? Like, don't say shit like that. That's fucked up. And Woods replied, I'm damn serious. It's clean and it's painless and it's traditional. It's traditional with hangmen to hang themselves when they get old, which I think he's just making up. I don't think it's traditional at all. <laughs> I think he's just lying. But... Do yeah. you know how he died, or are we getting there? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> now, Woods became something of a minor celebrity in the wake of the executions. He gave interviews to any journalists who would uh, sit and talk to him. The blizzard of media attention came as a shock to his wife, Hazel Woods. Uh, and I'm going to read a quote she gave to the Emporia Gazette on October 17th, 1946, when they asked her about the fact that her husband had killed all of the Nazi high command. He never told me that he was doing that type of work. He didn't mention any hangings, and the first I knew of it was when I saw his picture in the papers. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... Doesn't even tell his wife. <laughs> oh, Real piece of shit. And it's there's a couple... Like, the charitable is like, oh, he didn't want her to worry because it's such... You know, it, it would have increased their risk, and maybe he felt that she'd be safer not knowing. I don't think that's the case. I think he either just didn't think to do it or his pay tripled, right? But he doesn't want to have to send extra money back to his wife because then he can't spend it on Oh, the that's guy. such that's a piece of shit reason. That's I my just guess. That's he, my guess. He wasn't a communicator, know. you know? He doesn't that's, see... that's also very possible. Yeah, yeah, he seems like that kind of guy that would just have a whole relationship and it would just be about eating or whatever. I mean, how would you feel if like, your your romantic partner after years of executing war criminals and you think he, you thinking he was like putting together like phone te like telephone wires <laughs> like cause, oh yeah i've just been hanging people for years just hanging folks all day that's what i've been doing <laughs> that's that means you need to ask more questions i think that's yeah. what that means yeah Ladies. most relationship experts would agree yeah now as interest in the executions began to wane and America moved on from World War II to go on to the important business of forgetting all of World War II's lessons, uh, John seems to have gotten somewhat <laughs> desperate for attention. 
Uh, Interviews conducted with him in this period reveal his increasing attempts to convince journalists that a secret cabal of Nazis was trying to murder him for his role in killing their leaders. I'm going to quote now from an article in the Mail Special Service. After I started hanging these German war criminals last year, someone tried to poison me in Germany, and somebody shot at me in Paris, but the poison only made me sick, and the bullet missed me. Somebody has to do this job. I got into it by accident years ago in the States. I attended a hanging as a witness, and the hangman asked me if I would mind helping. I helped and later took over myself. I just don't let it bother me. Now that this Nuremberg job is over, I'm ready to go back to the United States, and I'm planning to leave in a few days, but I may come back to Germany. There are more than 120 war criminals waiting here to be hanged, including those 43 sentenced to the Almaty Massacre. I had some buddies killed in that massacre. I'll just come back here just to get even for them. So this is how he continues to present himself in the post-war period. And it's hard to say with a guy like John, but it is possible that he believed a lot of what he was saying. People who knew him said that in the years after the executions, he took to carrying a pair of forty-five caliber handguns everywhere he went as protection against possible Nazi assassins. He was quoted by one reporter as saying, if some German thinks he wants to get me, he'd better make sure he does it with his first shot because I was raised with a pistol in my hand, which he definitely was not. Um, <laughs> is this a real threat? <laughs> is Because, it, I mean, it's, it's a great question. It sort of is, right? But also, wouldn't they be screwing themselves over by, like, calling attention to themselves by, like, trying to kill this hangman who really di- wasn't a shot caller? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you'd think. Um, although he'd be easier, it'd be easier to kill the hangman than Eisenhower, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, it, it, it's possible, like, I can see how... You know, as much of a liar as we know John Woods was, I can see how he could have legitimately believed his life was in danger. It's not unreasonable to think that that would make someone paranoid, even if there was no actual plot against him. But it is possible there was a plot against him. So, uh, yeah, eventually the army stopped having much of a use for John, and he went back to serving as a normal soldier. And in 1950, he was stationed on the Inuitok uh, Atoll in the Pacific, uh, one of our nuclear weapon test bases. And Woods's job was basically to act as a guard and a gopher for the scientists and engineers who worked there. And thanks to Operation Paperclip, many of these scientists were Germans who had previously worked on the Nazi rocket program or in the military aircraft industry. And on June 21st, 1950, John C. Woods was tasked with changing some light bulbs, showing his characteristic lack of attention to detail. He changed these light bulbs while standing in ankle-deep water. A current of electricity surged through the water for unclear reasons and electrocuted him to death instantly. In the years since, there have been numerous rumors that John Woods was murdered, presumably by Nazi scientists for his role in the execution of their leaders. This is not impossible, but there is no hard evidence to support this theory. So... Yeah, like that, yeah, that's how it all goes down. <laughs> Fascinating ending. Wow. Yeah. Five stars. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's pretty, it's like one of those things where it's not impossible that some of these Nazi scientists would have wanted revenge, but also like the scientists tended to be, you know, even the ones who did a lot of Nazi shit and used slave labor and stuff, like Werner von Braun did some awful things, but he cared more about the science than the Nazism. Like he wasn't, in love with the Fuhrer or anything. Um, he was kind of like Keitel. Well, he was just like willing to do the horrible Nazi shit to get to do the things he wanted to do. Um, didn't, didn't the government kind of vet these scientists a little bit to make sure they weren't totally dangerous? No, 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 no. As long as they, okay. So one of the people that we brought in after world war two, uh, was Hitler's chief architect. And like the, the guy who had like managed the Germans armaments industry during world war two and had like, 
organized the massive use of slave labor um, and was a gigantic piece of shit and one of Hitler's best friends. And we forgave that guy because he knew things. We He was good at organizing shit. And like we needed, we we wanted his help in sort of like Cold War planning shit. Like, like oh we did this with God. a lot of guys. Werner von Braun designed rockets that were used to be fired specifically on civilian chunks of, of cities in London or cities in, in England. Like, and we forgave him because he knew how to build rockets. Like all the, we, we didn't give a shit what they did as long as they were good at the kind of science we needed. So it's, so it's totally, not impossible. it's not impossible that these guys killed him. It's not impossible. That said, it's also totally in character for John C. Woods for him to have been completely unconcerned and uncareful while working with electricity and get himself killed. Yeah. Because he was a dumb, gross piece of shit who didn't pay attention to his work. So hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't die by hanging, though. Sorry, John. No, he did not <laughs> die by hangings. Sorry, John. So, Courtney, how 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 you feeling about John C. Woods at the end of this little tale? Man, that was a fun one. I, yeah, I, yeah. I feel he's not he's not the worst guy. No, 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 no. Like he's he's. Uh, <laughs> French McLean, his biographer, frequently describes him as a bum, um, like, which I think is fair. Like, he's not like a crazy monster who like wanted to kill people because he enjoys death. He was like just kind of a shitty dude who didn't want to go to war and thought killing people was easier, and then liked that had made him important enough that he could drink all day. Like that's that's my feel for John C. Woods. <laughs> yeah, some of those instincts yeah. I can relate to. <laughs> yeah 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 it's a fascinating tale and it's as close to getting what they deserved as as these guys could have gotten they certainly didn't deserve to be executed by a hangman who cared deeply about uh his his craft <laughs> no but they did get yeah the special trap doors i love that touch <laughs> yeah yeah, and I, you know, it's one of those things. I don't know if he, if it's true that he designed the trap door specifically to hit people's faces on the way down. But if you look at pictures of these guys' corpses, we, there's clear pictures of all of their bodies immediately after execution because it was part of like the legal documentation, and they all busted their faces open on that fucking <laughs> trap door. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, it kind of rules. Like, I'm normally not a. Like, I think it's fucked up when people talk about, like, wanting, you know, prisoners in jails to get raped or whatever, because, like, Torture that's revenge. not why we should yeah. have a juster. Yeah, it's, but, like, these guys are Nazis. <laughs> like, I'm not uh, all, I'm okay with them getting hit in the face one extra time on the way down. I'm not going to, I'm not going to consider that a miscarriage of justice. Um, I think it's kind of fine. <laughs> I think it's kind of fine. So, yeah. I feel like we could all use a good story of uh, terrible people having something horrible happen to them. I love this. I have a quick question. Um, sure. So I never think, I always think about the Hitler stuff and World War II, and then I never think about Germany's government right after, but this has made me think mm -hmm. about that. So did we install who we thought should be the leaders? Did did like but, the U.S. and Britain and the leading country, did the allied countries do that? Or how did their new leadership form? 
Well, I mean, it was not an immediate process. Germany was split between East and West, and the Soviets um, controlled East Berlin, and there was a, 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 a East German state that was set up with initially Soviet backing. It wasn't like a, a complete like satellite state or anything. Like it had, it, 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 like actually, one of the things that they'll point out is that the East German um, security apparatus, their like uh, secret police, were actually better than the the Soviet secret police because like Germans are just good at that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, so there was the East German state that was like a communist state in East Germany. And then there was like West Germany and like Berlin was split right down the middle. And West Germany was sort of controlled by the allies for a while after the war and then gradually set up to have its own democratic elections and government and stuff. Um, and we just made sure there wasn't one of these like horrible people in that role. Well, I mean, kind of from the beginning of the German uh, Federal Republic, uh, like the the current German state that exists, one of their rules is that you can't be a fucking Nazi. Like you can't have swastikas. You can't display things. Like they're the the the, the people who wound up like running for office and stuff for the most part were folks who'd been like a lot of them were folks who'd been like in the early stages were folks who'd been like persecuted by the Nazis who'd been like left wing activists and stuff in the pre Nazi period. Yeah. Yeah, some folks like that. Like, there's some sketchy stuff that happened, too. But, like, uh, kind of a lot of the Nazi, like, the actual people who wanted to do Nazi shit either died during the war or fled the country or afterwards, like, knew enough to keep their heads down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not competent to go into, like, deep detail about, like, how uh, the German Republic was sort of established post-World War II. But it was like a gradual process of us running things until we felt like uh, things were rebuilt enough and set up enough that like they could start having elections and self-governing. And like even after the point at which they became an independent state, um, there was throughout a lot of the Cold War, like a, a huge U.S. and British military presence in Germany. They were effectively an occupied country. And there's still mili- U.S. military bases um, in Germany right now. Um, obviously, Germany's a fully independent country now, and they have their own mm-hmm. military. Um, but it's also like one of the th- like the Bundeswehr, the current modern German military. Some people would describe as kind of a laughing stock. Laughing stock's not fair, but it's oh, really? not. It's not very large, and it's not very capable. And some of that's pretty purposeful. Like I, I think there there was there was a reticence for Germany to have a large military ever again after World War II. And that's starting to change in part because of like Russian aggression in Ukraine and this understanding that like the German, the the Bundeswehr and like like the, like the EU's military for like, they don't have very many tanks. Like they don't have yeah. a super capable. Um, so like they, 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 there's, I think there's some people talking about the fact that they, that may have to change. I think it's understandable for there to always be reticence for the rest of the future of Germany ever having a large military again. <laughs> totally but the reason that i asked was because leadership yeah. wise seems like it did work out you know like they have oh yeah no no they have Absolutely. had good leaders since then hugely hugely if you're looking at like this the great successes of international like government and particularly even of u.s foreign policy like i'm not a give the u.s credit for a lot of things guy but the marshall plan which is the plan by which we rebuilt most of europe and germany was a huge success and both the occupation of Germany and the occupation of Japan post-war were huge successes because both nations have turned into very prosperous countries where people have a fairly high degree of personal 
freedom and seem to be relatively, if you're looking at the grand scheme of societies in the world, both are doing all right. Uh-huh. Like if you compare that to Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany, yeah, you have to look at the rebuilding of both countries as a pretty significant success. Way to go, America. Good job. <laughs> well, it was a lot of people. It's, it's a shame we didn't, again, learned nothing from it um, because we never we never did anything like that again. Not competently. Like you can contrast like what happened with the re- attempted rebuilding of Iraq and Afghanistan to what happened in Germany and Japan, and and it's uh, very unpleasant. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah. Just, yeah. Anyway, fun tales. Not good, America. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, was fun. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice to go back to these stories of like a time when you could be proud of America, like that time we had that drunken hobo execute all those Nazis. Like, <laughs> ah, that makes me just want to like sing the Star Spangled Banner, salute a flag. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm feeling very patriotic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I can't so, wait for listeners to see what this guy looks like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Show her a picture of John Seawitz. Oh, I did. She, she showed me uh, a he few. Looks yeah. I was like, exactly Ooh. like him. <laughs> I got to say, you guys, one of my favorite parts of the show is Googling the bad guys and being like, oh, yeah, that looks like a piece of shit. Yeah. Never fails. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, he's amazing. Well, you got any pluggables to plug as we, we sail out on a river of patriotism? <laughs> Well, uh, the podcast, you guys, Private Parts Unknown, we just did a two-part series from Mexico City, Um, one episode about masculinity, and then an episode with some amazing artists that are kind of fucking with the binary, and yeah, I'm really proud of them, so check them out, Private Parts Unknown, wherever you get podcasts. So check out Private Parts Unknown. Um, think about private parts when you think of knots. Nope, nope, nope. That's not a good way to <laughs> lead people into this. No. Uh, boy, Sophie, I am not in a good place right now. I am just spinning out into control. Uh, we have a website, BehindTheBastards.com. Um, I have a social media, at I write okay. Uh, we have an Instagram and a Twitter, at, at BastardsPod. Um, and we have a desire for you to sometimes the world needs an unshowered Nazi killing hobo. And if that's you, shit, I don't really know where to go with this. Sometimes the world gets what it needs. This is, yeah. Sometimes the world gets what it needs. All right. Well, the episode's over. We're done. Go, go home, everybody. Well, you're probably home or in your car or pooping. Keep doing what you're doing, but we're Robert, done. Robert, the episode's over. <laughs> yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at Kings Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. Kings Island is now open on weekends.